This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Miles Danhausen Jr., writer and editor for the Peninsula Pulse. Long before COVID flipped the world upside down, a resort community was struggling to find a solution to the lack of affordable housing for the area's workforce. Heading into 2020, the issue is at the top of the priority list for area leaders. Then COVID came along and exacerbated the problem as people from across the country set their sights on land in prime resort destinations to escape the crowded cities. Many relocated permanently. This drove up home and rental prices even higher and took more housing stock out of the rental pool. This sounds a lot like Door County, but it's not. Today, we're talking to journalist Gloria Liu about another resort community that is facing many of the same struggles we have here. In November, Gloria wrote a fascinating piece for Outside Magazine titled How to Save a Ski Town about the housing struggles and solutions in Crested Butte, Colorado. Gloria, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Mel. You know, I came across your story because we cover a lot of housing issues here in Door County. And an old high school classmate of mine who doesn't live up here anymore, but stays very connected to the community, sent me your article. And I put it off for a second because I first clicked on it and I was like, wow, this is this is long. And then, <laughs> But then I went back to it the next day. And I mean, really fascinating. And as I'm reading it, I'm just like, if you just take out Crested Butte and plug in Door County, in different spots, mm. and you swap a, a Crested Butte councilman's name for a Door County councilwoman's name. I mean, it is really so much the same story we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah, that's something that really struck me as I was reporting this story because I spoke to uh, not just officials in Crested Butte, but people who were working on affordable housing solutions all over the Mountain West, and it was all the same dynamics, both in terms of the causes and the obstacles facing the solutions in every town. And, and I think, you know, when you read about, obviously, as you know, like national coverage of housing, it's the same story, like whether you're, you know, talking about Seattle, Washington or Prince of View, Colorado. Yeah. And anybody in these little silos, we kind of think this is our unique problem. And this is a, like in mm. Door County, at least, we certainly go like, this is a Door County, we have to solve this. Like we, we're getting crunched by this. But it's happening everywhere. It's, there are some very local dynamics that play in any specific to any particular community, but it's kind of like we're all getting hit by this much more macro level issue. I'm curious, how did you come across? You said like you are not a housing expert and this isn't like you don't cover the housing beat. So how did you come to this story and wanting to tell this story? Yeah, that's a great question. I think my interest in housing kind of rose organically last year because I bought my first house. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a really eye-opening experience. I was shopping for a home the fall of 2020 and I'm a you know single first-time home buyer. I don't have a partner or somebody to put a mortgage payment with, and it was challenging. And that really opened my eyes, I think, to just the challenges facing everyday people and trying to find, whether it's your first home or just finding a home at all. And so I think that kind of organically sparked some interest in housing. And in the spring of 2021, some local news articles started circulating about the housing shortage in ski towns in the West and living in Colorado. This obviously interested me a lot. I ski, I spend, you know, most of my weekends in places like Crested Butte or Steamboat Springs, you know, up in the mountains. And these are communities that, yeah, I know really well and hold really near and dear to my heart. And 
um, when I started reading about how bad it was getting, yeah, I just naturally sort of was drawn to explore a little bit more about the topic. What the papers and the local media were reporting on was really, it was starting to affect the businesses, which I'm sure you all have seen in Door County too, that these communities no longer have affordable housing for workers, so they can't, there's no one left to work and restaurants mm-hmm. are shutting down and, and bars can't open, you know, all the time. And that was when I was like, wow, this actually is reaching crisis level. <laughs> yeah. It is something that we have, the, the warning signs were here. I mean, the problem's been here a long time and the warning signs of a greater problem have been here for 20 to 25 years in, in our community. Mm-hmm. And basically it never really hit that head where people saw these tangible, you know, you'd hear these stories, but if you were just a customer at these restaurants, you're like, well, the restaurant's still open. They must be finding somebody. The market must be working. Uh, the free market is correcting itself. And then over the last couple of years, the strain hit and then it cracked. I mean, places just started closing several days a week. It's not just like tourism industry problems that our local hospital is saying, we're having trouble getting employees. And the local police force is saying, we're having trouble attracting cops to our, our area. So it's just now you finally have legislators are waking up to it. Councilmen, the county board, those kind of things are starting to say, maybe we should have a role to play in this, even though people have been shouting from the rooftops for 20 years that it was coming, but now we're dealing with it after things have broken. And it sounds like that's what you found in, in Crested Butte. I, you know, for those who are unfamiliar with this article and who don't know Crested Butte, could you kind of give us a picture of Crested Butte and what that community is like? Sure. Yeah. So Crested Butte is a, you know, a resort town in the mountains in Southwest Colorado. It's pretty remote. It is four hours from Denver not particularly close to really any major airport, and the population of the town is about 3,000. For a long time, they sort of billed themselves as uh, the last great Colorado ski town because there wasn't like a big ski corporation like Vail that had taken over. You know, the town's very quaint. People still leave their cruiser bikes sitting outside their homes. <laughs> they don't have any high-speed lifts on their little ski resort. And yeah, it was a really idyllic, kind of a true like mountain town experience, even while, you know, other towns like Breckenridge and Vail were becoming a lot more commercialized. And then, you you know, we had Aston over the mountain, which was more obviously catering to wealthy people. But, you know, just like you were saying, you know, with Door County, housing has been a problem in towns like Crested Butte and Aston and Vail and all these resort towns for about 30, 40 years. And people have been, you know, talking about this with kind of eerily very similar rhetoric you know you can find newspaper articles from 30 years ago saying like this is the end you know like there's <laughs> rich people coming in and buying second homes and driving up the home <laughs> prices and people can't afford to work here anymore and they're all moving down the valley and this conversation's been happening for yeah since the 70s at least but you're right it sort of took this like grinding to a halt of society for people to really finally wake up and frankly like for the general public to really care, right? Like there's yeah. economic loss happening in Crested Butte. They didn't have bus drivers to drive school children to school. So I think that was when really people finally started to take it seriously. Well, I mean, I guess maybe it's unfair to say people weren't taking it seriously. You know, affordable housing advocates have been screaming at the top of their lungs for a long time. But I think that was when, this is now when sort of the general public has really been like, wow, we have a real problem. Your approach to this article was, what really stuck out to me was that it wasn't, you know, like you said, people have been shouting about this for a long time and sounding the alarm. And you could have written another article about, here's a ski town, here's all the problems, look, it's ruined. But you tried to focus and bring it back to the solutions that this community has found. And, you know, reading it from my point of view, being in Wisconsin and 
the struggles we've had to get any traction in terms of trying stuff because it's sort of, there is this hesitancy. There's this kind of thought of like, well, we have to fix the entire problem. Otherwise it's not worth doing anything almost sort of like that. Mm. And it seems like in Crested Butte, they've tried a lot of different things to nibble at it in a lot of different ways. And it seems like in spite of the fact that there are, there is still this big crisis there, they've done some things to create a lot of uh, affordable housing. There definitely is a history in this town of trying to learn from some of the mistakes of some of their peers or maybe not mistakes, but experiences. So, you know, one thing that one of the longtime town council members told me was Crested Butte saw what happened in Aspen in the 70s and 80s when Aspen became this playground for the rich and started attracting a lot of celebrities and millionaires and billionaires. And, you know, Aspen, to their credit, did become the first ski town in North America to start an affordable housing program, but, you know, clearly hasn't really been enough. And Crested Butte, seeing this kind of happening, started their own affordable housing program. The way they approached it was to incentivize homeowners to build accessory dwelling units. So, you know, also called, I guess, mother-in-law apartments or Mm -hmm. ADUs for short. Um, That was a big tool that they used back in the 80s and 90s. And because of that, 25% of the town is actually deed-restricted housing, which is pretty amazing, actually, like that a quarter of the town is under some kind of affordable housing program. But yeah, I wanted to ask you to to outline what that deed restriction program is, because that's something that there's been some talk of and and some fledgling programs like that here. But this one was pretty interesting to me. Yeah. So a deed restriction is basically just any kind of restriction that's written to the title of a property. And it can be a restriction like who you can sell it to, It can be a restriction on how much you can sell it for. It can be a restriction on who can live there and how much money that person can make. So it's a pretty, at least um, in a lot of places in the West, a fairly common affordable housing tool. For example, in Boulder County, where I used to live, a common deed restriction on the affordable housing there is like you have to make, you can't make more than this max number of dollars per year as your annual income. And if you don't exceed that income level, then you can buy into this pool of restricted housing that also can't appreciate by more than I think it's like 3% a year or something close to that. So that's a really common deed restriction program. And in Crested Butte, they did have a program like this where I believe that, you know, the people who lived in these units have to live and work in the county. But really the most innovative and exciting deed restriction program I found when I was reporting the story came out of Vail, Colorado. And I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that. Which one are you talking about the Indeed program? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk about that because yeah. that was next on my list. I, I just thought that one was really fascinating. So Vail has what I think is probably one of the most promising and exciting programs I've heard of in at least the West for ski towns. And they have a program called Indeed. It's a deed restriction program. But really what makes it different is that it's super, super simple. So they started it in 2017. And, you know, the idea was kind of like Vail sits in this sheer valley with really you know, Sheer Valley topography, it's surrounded by public land. So building new housing is expensive and not really feasible. So the people who, you know, were tasked with solving the affordable housing problem were like, we can't build our way out of this problem. We have to claw back some of the existing housing that's, you know, claw back to affordable housing. And they have like a really big second homeownership there. I think they found something like 90% of the new homes that were being sold were being sold to second homeowners. And hmm. once sold to second homeowners, they rarely ever reverted to local ownership. So that's a pretty dire situation. So they came up with this program called Indeed. And basically the program is really simple. It just says that 
you know, if your house is an Indeed house, it has to be lived in or owned by somebody who works in the county. And and the town buys a deed restriction from you as the homeowner. So let's say you own a house in Vail. The county will pay you 15 to 20% of the house's value. So that they're paying about an average of $69,000. And you collect that payout today without even selling your home. Mm-hmm. And in return for that, they'll put the deed restriction on your home that says when you do sell it, you can only sell it to somebody who works in the county or like is going to rent to someone who works in the county. So in doing so, you know, while they don't say, oh, you have a maximum price you can sell for, they do essentially tie the price of the home to local wages. Yeah, And so it basically returns this house to the affordable housing pool without having to build anything new, um, without Vail having to pay anything ongoing to maintain it in the future. So it's really, really cost-effective for Vail. And, you know, as somebody who owns a home, you could see how it could be an attractive proposition for you, right? Like, you can collect $70,000 today without liquefying your home. Yes, yeah, a bunch of cash in your pocket. Exactly. And there's no restriction on the price you can eventually sell it for, which is, you know unlike many deed restriction programs. Like, I think a lot of people, that's a deterrent for a lot of people for entering a deed restriction program is like, well, I don't want to cap the appreciation value of my home because that's like real equity and wealth building that I'm missing out on. So, Which, like you said, you are sort of capping it because you're tied to local wages, but you're not, Mm -hmm. you're kind of buying that cap as a municipality. So it's not, it's not as simple as like, you know, because obviously if a municipality said, we're going to put this new regulation, you can't sell your home for this. Obviously, there's huge backlash, right? But since it's, mm-hmm. all right, if you decide you want to do this, go ahead and do it. I'm kind of surprised. It seems like a lot of people bought into this program because it does limit your ability to resell it, you know, like right now where the market is around here, maybe doubling <laughs> for, for some areas of, of Door County. That would really restrict what you could sell that for. So the people who are entering in, did you get any sense of like, are these people like do-gooders or they just want the cash up front or like, what is the motivation? It was interesting. I did ask George Ruther. He's the bail housing director who came up with the program. And, you know, his response was like, you know, surprisingly, not everybody who, you know, owns a home or buys a home, like is in it for the pure investment motivation. And for a lot of people having that money here and now today, like, $69,000 today was enough financial incentive to accept that when they do sell it down the line, it's not probably going to go for the price that they could sell it for um, if they could sell it to a bigger market. And I do think that there was, he said, you know, just kind of maybe not a do-gooder spirit, but people felt good knowing that they were keeping their home in the local pool. Mm. You know, I think housing having been the long-standing problem that it is in these mountain communities, I do think a lot of people want to contribute and and be part of the solution instead of just part of the problem. Where did the municipality, in this case, uh, Vail, how do they fund those purchases? 69,000, you know, at first I'm like, oh, this would be a great idea for Door County, but, you know, we're a bunch of small towns. Where do they get that 69,000 to buy these deed restrictions? Yeah, so initially, that was something that George Ruther said was just, he felt really fortunate about, was that the town of Vail was really supportive. So initially, when this was just a pilot program, it came out of the town's general fund. Now they actually, just this past November, put a tax on the ballot to specifically fund this initiative. So it's now tax funded in order for them to achieve their goal of basic of buying a thousand deed restrictions by I think it's twenty twenty three. It basically comes out of the town's general fund and tax revenue. Okay. And are they doing that through it's like a half cent sales tax, if I remember correctly? 
that what they were looking at? Exactly, yeah. And it's you know it's worth noting that Vail is a really wealthy. It's a place that attracts wealthy clientele, right? It's one of the North America's premier ski resorts. People fly in from all over the country to to go there, and it's the most famous ski resort in Colorado. So <laughs> you know they get a lot of tourists and. They have access to tax revenues that not every community like Accursed View has. You also wrote about a couple other things that they're doing that help keep things in in the affordable housing stock, that there's been mention of some things like this in Door County, but no one's really taken it seriously. But one of those is capping the number of licenses for short-term rentals, such as Airbnbs and VRBOs. Is that Crested Butte that has done that? And what has the response to that been? Because I think here so many of these investors would lose their minds if there were <laughs> a suggestion of a cap. Yeah, so Crested Butte was one of the first mountain towns in the West, at least, to put a cap on the short-term rental licenses they issue, um, and they capped it at 30% of all the dwellings in town. And surprisingly, nobody else really followed suit for a while. But in this past year, Crested Butte's actually put a full moratorium on any more short-term rental licenses for a year while they figure out what to do with short-term rental licenses and a few other ski towns have followed suit. Telluride, Colorado, put a two-year moratorium on issuing any more short-term rental licenses. And I believe some towns in Summit County have also done that. And yeah, I think that's a recognition of the research that has been done that shows that having a lot of short-term rentals in a community does inflate home prices and obviously takes up housing stock that could be long-term rental stock. Yeah, so you're doing you're doing a couple of things when you do put a cap on that. Like you said, you put you're opening up housing stock, and you're slowing the rate of growth of of how like a home it becomes a little less valuable if it's not eligible to be sold as like a investment tool. But I wonder, is there a lot of local backlash to that? Because it's not just necessarily that's the weird thing about this problem. It's not just oh these outsiders are going to come in and rent these Airbnbs. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot of local residents who their value is in their home and they're thinking either one day I'm going to rent it out or maybe I'd sell it and I want top dollar and I want to sell it to somebody who's going to rent it out. I mean, did you hear much on, on that front for backlash? Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah when Crested Butte passed that short-term rental cap, there was a ton of discussion about it in town, you know, hundreds of people showing up to town meetings. And uh, I spoke to the mayor of Telluride as we were approaching this last local election and she was saying that she was getting just a slew of emails, mostly against, they had a short-term rental cap proposed on the ballot. And yeah, and it's exactly that, is that a lot of people in the community are, you know, own a second property. And the only way they're able to really afford doing that is by renting it on Airbnb, because the economics aren't working out with long-term rentals. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's politically a very hard one to pass, just like, you know, a new affordable housing development is too, right? There's backlash from the community for other reasons. But yeah, short-term rental caps are generally see plenty of backlash, (laughs) but they can be, you know, it's it's interesting. So I got a lot of responses after I wrote the story and one of the people who called me is a friend of mine who works in the short-term rental business. He doesn't work for Airbnb or VRBO. He works for a smaller company. But, you know, he was saying like, yeah, our company has done a lot of research that shows that short-term rentals don't, you know, increase rents in an area and they don't impact the housing long-term rental stock. And I said like, well, actually, <laughs> this research that I found is the complete opposite, you know, and told him about 
a study that I was included in my story, Vancouver was one of the first cities in North America to essentially, well, they, they put really strict short-term rental restrictions in place in 2018. And two years before that, they actually, they passed it what's called an empty home tax, where they tax basically second homeowners who aren't renting their second homes long-term. And what they saw was they saw, you know, a 16% increase in 10 inches properties from 2017 to 2019. And they saw about, I think, 9,000 uh, apartment units returned to the long-term rental stock wow. in 2019 alone. So, yeah, I mean, I think as unpopular as these measures can be, there is evidence that they do convert housing stock back to long-term rental stock. Yeah, I mean, it seems any argument that short-term rentals don't drive up prices, it just doesn't pass the smell test of supply and demand. (laughs) Right. And you you touched on this, the empty home tax. That was another one, huge opposition to it. I'm surprised they even pushed for it and, and put it on the docket. But that would be one where like you said, you have a second home. And in Door County, this is that would be a, a huge lift here because I think there are roughly 26,000 housing units in Door County and about half of them are full-time occupied. So the other half are seasonal homes or wow. vacation rentals, things like that. Mm-hmm. There is actually a ton of housing stock here. It's just all for short-term use. Yeah. So that empty home tax, do you know how much that was that they were putting on some of these homes? So uh, in Crested View, what they proposed, they put this on the ballot for the November election, this past November, um, was a $2,500 a year empty home tax. And you would be subject to that if you owned a home, a second home that wasn't rented at least six months out of the year in a consecutive way. So you couldn't like add up six months of Airbnb rentals that had to be six consecutive months. But if you did rent it six consecutive months to somebody who worked there, then you were exempt from that $2,500 tax. And mm. yeah, and that's a, you know, it's, it's not nothing, but it's less than some of the amounts that were kicked around earlier. Somebody in the earlier discussions floated a $10,000 tax, a $5,000 tax was thrown out there. Vancouver's empty home tax is actually quite a bit more stringent. It's a percentage of your home value. And I want to say it's, it's either 1.5% or 3% of your home's property value, which is hefty. That one's a, that's a tough one. Um, and so you can see how you know, that would really incentivize people to just rent their units. This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job in Door County with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kiwani counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org slash careers. You know, as you detail all these, and these did not, different communities in the these mountain ski towns have implemented some of these measures. I don't want to give the impression that like, yeah, these just sailed through. These were easy. It sounds like these were big fights in each instance. But the the interesting thing to me is that anyone even put these on the table because in our community, we have, you know, there's a community called Sevastopol that has probably took the greatest effort to restrict some short-term rentals, but nothing to the extent of this. And I read this and I can't help but think like, wow, the municipal leaders out there have a lot more guts in Colorado than we do here. <laughs> in terms of just taking on a fight because those are all really contentious battles. Yeah, that's really interesting that it has been so much harder in Door County. You know, and it's, it's just like you said, I think the communities are very similar in a lot of ways. Even when you say 50% of the 
homes in Door County are second homes. That's roughly the same in ski towns like Telluride and, and Aspen too. And yeah, I think there is, you know, a history in Colorado, just sort of speaking anecdotally to friends who have lived here for a long time or a little more familiar with like the political our climate here, like Colorado has historically been pretty progressive when it comes to affordable housing. Uh, I mean, clearly it hasn't been enough in our resort towns, but it's been something that this, at least like historically state leaders have been really aware of and vocal about. So I wonder if there's partly that going on, you know, mm. and also just with, we have some really extreme examples of just this housing problem run rampant in places like Aspen and Telluride, which have really become just, yeah, just overrun with <laughs> really, really wealthy second homeowners that are conspicuously wealthy. And, yeah. and so it, there's always been like some examples that we've been able to see firsthand that feel really close to home. And like, maybe that has made it easier to get some of these measures onto ballots. I know I've covered a couple of communities where some of these housing discussions have come up and the municipalities themselves have, have thought that, you know, they didn't really explain it in the concept of these deed restrictions that you said, they, they weren't that far along, but this idea of, well, we, we can't get enough people to run our utility district or our parks people or our fire department. Mm. So can we, you know, do we develop housing and can we say this is only for our staff? And there are some hurdles about it, but it, it does sound like through these deed restrictions, they might be able to accomplish some of the things that they're wanting to do in a different manner that doesn't lead to them having to run a housing development. And that's, you know, that's what scares anybody in a town of 800 of adding any sort of new responsibility when you're struggling to get the employees to run the existing responsibilities. So I think that that's a really fascinating thing for some people up here to check out. You know, you talk about that dichotomy between the people who visit a place and the second homeowners and the people who live and work there. And it's easy to go on vacation, even though I live and have grown up and, and spent my whole life in this vacation destination. When you go somewhere else, it's pretty easy to just focus on your experience as a visitor and not think as much about how do people actually live here. So you can mm -hmm. see the glitzy side and the clean side and the, the easy side of, oh, we're on vacation, we're just having fun. But the reality of living there is much different. And you did a, a great job of, of articulating that throughout this story. And I, I love one of your transitions here where you just said, reality check. Unless you're one of the uber wealthy, living in a mountain town has never been the stuff of fairy tales. And that is so true of pretty much every resort community. I'm guessing what you have out there is a, similar to here where the, some of those economic indicators are really hard to parse because if you look at, say, like income in an area that might pull in a lot of retirees, investment income, so it's not really a good measure, but then you look at wages and you're seeing this big gulf between the people working there and the people who own those second homes or a lot of the homes and property. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's maybe part of what has drawn so much, I guess, public attention to the housing problem in towns, in places like Door County or Crested Butte or Vail. You know, like you said, the housing crisis is a national problem and it's happening in, you know, San Francisco and, or has been for a long time, you know, and Austin. And, but there's something about these places, like the fact that they're, yeah, these, the playgrounds or places we go to like have vacation and to 
you know, be in paradise for some period of time. But there's this just like really glaring juxtaposition between the people who can afford a vacation there and the people who are just trying to like live and work there. And I think that makes it really like, it's a good way, I guess, to sort of tell the story of like what's happening everywhere. And in some cases, the situation is so exaggerated in these towns, right? Like mm-hmm. the disparity between what, you know, local workers make and, and the home prices. Like, I think in Crested Butte, the median home price reached $900,000 last <laughs> summer, and I'm sure it's much higher now. And, you know, the that's nowhere close to what, you know, you could afford just working at a bar there or Not quite attainable. working on the mountain. <laughs> yeah. And it's also like that changing dynamic of what defines your town. And that is something that our community is grappling with of, and this happened 40 years ago, it just happened when we really became a tourist community is kind of the old farm industrial mentality of coming around to acceptance of the arts and, and realizing that it was all part of this community. And now it's that extra layer of, of wealth. And I think last summer, the Wall Street Journal did a, a story about mansions in Door County. And there was hmm. a lot of talk on Facebook of, you know, just like, oh man, we are just getting overtaken by the uber wealthy. And there's this really weird dynamic with it too, because our public schools up here are really great. And they have really great funding, some of the best funded schools in the state of Wisconsin. And that's not because of necessarily the local incomes. This is driven largely by the demand and the the property values of those much wealthier homes and much wealthier second home owners. And so we, we benefit from it, but you also don't want to see your community change. You don't want to lose that grasp of your community. And it sounded like you saw the same thing with some of these people in, in Crested Butte of just, hey, we we were this kind of small hidden ski town for ski bums like us. And now we're kind of losing that. I mean, it's so hard, right? Because, you know, that visitorship and the tourism that brought all these wealthy second homeowners and is like bringing in tax dollars is what the community relies on too. But I think we can kind of all agree that we've gone past the point at which this, you know, economic boost or whatever is helpful anymore. And it's, it's just no longer sustainable. And that's, you know, I think the role of, and I guess, you know, I may be showing my personal bias, but that is the role of government too, right? Is to be a check and balance on just pure market forces. That is like why we have local government and our government at the state level too, and government at the federal level too, to check these market forces that would otherwise just totally run rampant and, you know, push us to the point of a non-functioning society anymore, which is what we're starting to see the beginning of in some of these places. Right. And it's not just like when we talk about affordable housing here, I I always try to emphasize like you're not just talking about people who want free housing or very, very low incomes. Like in, and this is like you said, if your medium home price is 900,000, you're pricing out most of your hospital staff. You're pricing out most of your professionals too, at a certain point when the price to get that high. And that's what we've seen here as well. Like there is no housing stock of much size between like, say even like 200 and $450,000 anymore. So even people who have moderate incomes, or even I think that that affordability level would be upper middle class incomes can't afford homes in some of these ski resort towns. And same thing in Door County. I'm curious, what kind of feedback have you received from this article, either from people in that community or elsewhere? Yeah, you know, it's been really positive, actually. I, I was kind of bracing myself for a lot of criticism, too, because obviously housing is such a hot-button topic. But it's, it's first of all, it's been a lot of feedback. I've heard from people 
all over, not just the country, but the world. I got letters from Verbier, Switzerland, which is obviously in the Swiss Alps and there's ski town there. And same thing's happening there, they said. I've heard from places that aren't ski towns, like Martha's Vineyard, a county in Michigan that sounds actually in some ways kind of similar to Door County, just a popular tourist destination. I'm going to take a stab. Is that like the, the Traverse City area? It's Le- Leland. Yeah. Is it Leland? <laughs> yes. Yep. Uh-huh. That, yeah. is, that community is essentially like if you took Door County and or Wisconsin and Michigan and just kind of folded them over each other, that is a peninsula just like Door County, but on the other side of the lake. <laughs> it's almost like a carbon copy. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I got a really thoughtful note from one of their um, housing advocates there. And yeah, just a lot of people saying, wow, like you could have been written, just like you said, you could have been writing this about my town. We're seeing all the same things happen. And it really just drove home, like, just like literally global problem this is. It's happening even in, in Europe. And which surprised me because like one thing that European towns have embraced that American towns haven't is density. Right. Like, you know, it's, they're, it's really normalized there. And I was, you know, sad to hear that despite that, they have similar problems in resort towns there. Hmm. And I also, you know, I also learned a lot from some reader feedback. Like, I think one reader who, similar to yourself, was a reporter who wrote about affordable housing for many years. You know, he said, and I thought this was fair, he said, you know, I think the experts in your story were a little too quick to dismiss the idea of building and that they were too quick to say, we can't build our way out of this problem. And, you know, he, he tied it back to density. He said, like, yeah, if you can rezone what's zoned for single family to be multifamily housing and built up, like, that's what we need. And he, you know, he brought up a really interesting point that sometimes affordable housing advocates, like, get in their own way by insisting upon, quote unquote, affordable housing instead of just building more free market housing. Like, they don't really believe the free market can provide, can solve the problem. But, you know, he pointed me towards some pretty compelling research that shows that, you know, basic supply and demand, if you just build more, the price will come down. So he was like, yeah, I absolutely think that, you know, building has to be part of the solution, in addition to these other government interventions and taxes that we pointed out. And I thought that was that was interesting. And another one we've grappled with here, but what we see in these resort towns that maybe is counter to what he's suggesting is that you have the local demand. And if you didn't have necessarily the outside influx into that area, you'd say, okay, build more. It'll drive all the rates down. What happens here is you build it and there's just, so you have the 25,000 people who live in Door County, but you have the 100,000 who are interested in Door County who gobble those mm. up. So as you build it, it doesn't end up driving the other rates down. It's just more stock that goes to people outside the area versus providing something new for the people in the area to compete over, if that makes sense. So sure. tourism towns have a, an interesting problem with that, right? Because you, your market isn't self-contained and you just have all this and you have the investor class and in a place like ours, and I'm guessing Crested Butte as opposed to Vail was like this in that, all right, Vail is already kind of maybe saturated or all the deals have been had. And then people look at Crested Butte and they say, oh, that's really cheap compared to Vail and that's going to go up. So you have people just speculating on the property. They don't even want to live here. They don't even want to build a house. They want the vacant land and they want to just speculate on it. And that's that's another aspect that's hitting a, a place like ours. And I'm guessing other places out West. Yeah. I think one thing, you know, it's interesting. This is a little bit of maybe a non sequitur. One thing I think isn't maybe discussed enough just in this whole housing crisis. I just haven't seen a lot of discussion of this. It's just like the role of federal tax policy and all this, Mm -hmm. you know, and I can't think of any other kind of investment that, you know, normal people engage in uh, where you can just avoid capital gains taxes by 
basically selling a property and then purchasing another investment property within 60 days or something. I can't remember what the exact tax is, but that's like a federal tax law. And it's really, I think, encourages real estate investment. And Mm -hmm. real estate investment wasn't something that like normal people like you or I did until the last few decades. And that's, I think, a a major dynamic, right? Like we just have more and more, like you said, of the investor class. And that drives second home ownership, which exacerbates this problem. And I mean, obviously, federal tax laws, it's a lot harder to change. (laughs) But um, that has to be a major contributor. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And, and the tax write-offs you can get on not just your primary home, you know, a lot of those tax laws to encourage home ownership were meant to get people into ownership in the first place, get their foot in the door. Mm-hmm. And then, but they also apply to a second home. So then it's, you're encouraging the investor. It's, it's kind of like, hey, we're going to sneak this in under the guise of this is encouraging people to buy their first home. And then it gets kind of taken advantage of by people who can then use it for investments. Yeah, it definitely encourages people to invest in real estate instead of invest in the stock market. So, I mean, one of the factors. Yeah. So I, I think that's, that exacerbates things, too. On the journalism aspect of this story, you know, when you go into, and it sounds like you're close to Crested Butte, but you don't live there. So you're telling a story of this community. I'm curious if you got much feedback from people within there, because it's it's hard to tell a story like this, because there are so many different aspects to it, right? And And these are, you know, Mm -hmm. housing is something that people are really feeling in their day-to-day lives in a situation like that. So how do you go in there and try and make sure you're telling the truest version of what they're going through without just doing uh, the parachute journalism, like, hey, I'm I'm from the Times, I'm just dropping in and here, uh, now I'm gone. (laughs) So how did you approach that? Yeah, that was really important to me, actually, because I could see how, yeah, it would be easy to, to do the latter, right? Like, and I think that was part of the reason I really, when I set out to do this story, like you said, like I didn't want to just write about the problems. I wanted to write about the solutions because I felt like I was seeing a lot of stories that were talking about how bad it had gotten. And they were very like doom and gloom. And, you know, obviously not every story can be a solution story, but I just really wasn't seeing a lot about the solutions. And that felt in a way almost like a little extractive, right? Like you're extracting and traffic. Hey, look, here's another thing that sucks in our world. (laughs) Totally. And this is how bad it's gotten, you know, and here's a video of this guy living out of his car in the the national forest. And so I think that maybe that part of my motivation to focus, try to find solutions and find people who are working for solutions came from that motivation of trying to like tell the story of the people who live here. And because there were people who were trying to fix it, you know, it wasn't just like something that was happening to them, like they had agency and they were fighting really hard. And I I actually found it really like inspiring and instructive just for like all of us, you know, like I think we are all living in a time when we're like just under a barrage of problems that feel out of our control between like climate change and the housing crisis. And and, like, it's easy to just be like, oh gosh, like everything sucks and there's nothing you can do about it. But (laughs) like fundamentally, I felt like this was really actually a story about everyday people who are actually trying to do what they could to fix really, really big problems. And so I guess like trying to approach it with that intention in my heart, I I sort of, I think, guided who I spoke to and the questions I asked and hopefully, you know, produced a story that got to their truth. Well, I think it, you know, it's a good story about Crested Butte and it's, it's a good lesson for places like ours. So for people far from there. So I think you did an excellent job with it. And I encourage anybody to check it out. I'll post links to the story with this podcast. And then we'll put these out on on social media as well. But if you want to search it, it's how to save a ski town. It was in outside magazine in November, a really great piece. And 
I appreciate you writing it. I appreciate you taking the time to discuss this with me on the Door County Pulse podcast. I will say also that I shared this story with a village trustee and uh, this trustee said, you need to print this. You need to print this whole article in full. Like, well, that would be plagiarism, but I will call the, <laughs> the journalist and uh, have a conversation. So I really appreciate you taking the time. It's, it's hopefully this opens some eyes to some potential solutions here. Yeah, thank you so much, Miles. It was really an honor to speak with you. And I, I hope it's helpful, too, in the ongoing uh, search for solutions in Door County. All right. And thank you, listeners, for sitting through 45 minutes of housing talk again with me. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.